Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Three Peas in a Pod. I'm Paul Jarvis, editor of Partnerships Bulletin and P3 Bulletin, and joining remotely due to a bout of COVID. While in the studio are my deputy, Jonathan Davis. Hi, Paul. And our projects tracker expert, Rory Chapman. Hi, Paul. In our last episode of 2023, we'll consider some of the points to come out of our recent webinar on Saudi Arabia, return to the question of political risk, both in the UK and North America, and ask what's going on in the higher education sector. Plus, Rory will be picking out some of his top projects from 2023. So, to kick us off, let's look back at the recent webinar on Saudi Arabia, which was hosted by our colleague Alicia Buller and sponsored by Affinitex, Deloitte and Herbert Smith Freehills. Now, we've known for a while about the country's ambition, but I think it was the scale of the projects really struck me during that conversation. They had 200 approved, which we've known about for a while. But of course, there's talk of a further 300 in the process of being approved and across 16 distinct sectors. So it was quite a reminder of just how big this market's going to be. But what are your thoughts on this, Jonathan? First of all, I thought it was a great webinar. It is available on our site, isn't it, for people to watch back. But for me, what was striking about it was that it felt like a view from inside of the Gulf and Saudi Arabia. Usually we look at it from an outside perspective, from you know the European and North American markets that are looking to get involved in the exciting pipelines. But to hear not just from officials who are leading up the governmental side, but also from private sector people who've made that transition and know what it's like to be on the ground and actually delivering these projects, I think it's a really useful insight to get to see how real it is, that it's not just ambitions, it's actually shovels in the ground and projects are being delivered, not just planned. That for me was the big striking thing. And again, on that point, sometimes you can look at it as if the start of the journey is today, but a lot of the focus was on the fact that the journey started a long time ago and a lot of projects have actually already been delivered. That it's not starting from scratch at this point. It's just scaling up this transformation. And you heard a number of people, particularly, you know, Graham Thompson from Affinitex, who's living in Saudi Arabia at the moment, is saying that the transformation over the last few years has been amazing. And that transformation is what they're trying to continue and to try and keep that momentum up. So I think it's really promising to see that it's real meat on the bones of what the program is it's not just a white paper here and there yeah and i think that's true obviously and they've had i guess a few false starts in some ways over the years because i know i think probably when we first started looking at at the saudi arabian market and actually the middle east market as a whole in some greater detail a lot of projects or there were several projects that would come along and maybe not get to financial close because actually the government wherever it was would decide actually when it comes down to it they can fund it cheaper than through uh, private finance. But, you know, with the, I mean, global interest rates, global increasing in global demand for different products, and obviously the expected over time reduction in the need for oil and gas, that's playing on the minds of, of those in charge in places like Saudi Arabia and has started to really make a difference. And we really are seeing, as you say, projects that are coming through to fruition now. And, I think that's giving a lot of confidence to people as well, that this is somewhere that they can go and invest. Totally. And it really felt like they are meeting the market where the market needs to be met at the same time. And there was talk about the different models that might be used, because there's been questions, particularly on some of the 
you know, the giga projects of how do you deliver something where you're trying to create the demand at the same time? And also some of question elements like recourse on projects. But when you hear the fact that institutional investors are, are really moving into this and you see the advisors that are there are real top draw advisors and also the acknowledgement from some of the officials that that's the process that they've been on. They really want to work to create a sustainable pipeline. I think you're seeing the fruits of that labor just by the names of the people that are there too. And I think Abdelila Elidan from the National Center for Privatization and PPPs, who was on the webinar, was saying that they're going to be agile in the way that they deliver. And that is in total you know, harmony with the way that the industry is delivering projects right now. There's a lot in flux on a global scale. And so to see authorities really working to meet the market where it is, is going to go a long way in making that pipeline sustainable for the future. Yeah, and I think there's still obviously questions, isn't there, over how you actually deliver something like you know Project Neom, the Giga City, and deliver that through some sort of public-private partnership arrangement. We've talked before on this podcast, we've written about it, I think, as well, that, as you sort of mentioned, creating some sort of availability-based or anything kind of based project where you're trying to get investors in when you don't know how many people are going to be in that area, never mind how many people might use that service or you know, pay for that toll or whatever. It's obviously going to have to be a very different model to anything we've seen before, but it's bringing in plenty of people to try and kind of resolve those issues. Yeah, and the most important thing you need to resolve those issues is willpower. And it obviously comes right from the top in the Gulf, and particularly in Saudi Arabia. There's so much momentum and backing and support from all levels of politics that you feel like any obstacle that they meet, they're, will, they're creating the environment with the impetus behind it to be able to overcome them and get these delivered. So it certainly is the place to watch. Yes, definitely. And I think plenty of people are watching it, obviously, and you know, plenty of investors and international players looking into the market. Like you say, plenty of advisors, you know, top advisors coming from around the world to be there and to work there. Again, I guess one question mark remains to be answered around the number of international investors that actually will end up on these projects. You know, The one major project that has signed in relation to NEOM so far is around the housing for the, the people who are actually going to build the city. And if you look at the actual investors on that, they're pretty much all internal Saudi Arabian organizations. So I think obviously there is going to be some questions around that until we start to see some of the bigger players coming in, international players coming in to, to invest in that. But I think you could also argue on the other hand that to start off with, to show that this is a market that can deliver these types of projects, maybe they're going to have to rely on some internal support to begin with. And then once you've created that pipeline and that stability, others will, will follow. And I think, you know, we've obviously seen away from Neom, away from those mega project types, we have seen international investors looking at the market and actually investing in the market as well. So it's a good start, certainly. Yeah, I mean, and you don't have to look very far. Over neighbouring UAE has, has got major players such as Plenary delivering school bundles. So clearly, when the conditions are right, these international players are willing to get involved and, and to help deliver these pipelines. It's just a question of facilitating that and I think as I said the willpower is certainly behind it to facilitate that so really exciting yeah 
Yeah. And just a reminder, as Jonathan said, the uh, webinar is available to watch. And actually, we can put the link to that webinar in the notes for this podcast. Well, that's the positive side of the market, I guess. But now for something a bit more downbeat. At the start of December, it was confirmed that the UK central government funding for the Birmingham PFI deal had been stopped. Or at least that's what the Birmingham Labour Party, which runs the council, had said had been confirmed to them. So it gets a bit murky here because the announcement came via the Labour Party, not the official council channels. And in fact, the council hasn't actually published the information it received from central government. The Department of Transport has suggested that it's up to the council to decide how it allocates the funding that it gets. So it's maybe not as straightforward and straight cut as the Birmingham Labour Party might have had us believe at the start. However, while the specifics are a bit unclear, the optics really aren't. You know, a contract that was signed in good faith in 2010 looks like it's about to unravel because of a lack of public funding. So this really brings us right back to that conversation I think that we had last time, Jonathan, around political risk. Yeah, and I've had a few conversations, you know, since we last recorded about political risk because it's been such a hot topic all around the world. We actually saw, as we're recording this last week, that the I-10 river project, Calcasieu River Bridge in um, Louisiana, might actually have had a lifeline thrown to it by the Department of Transportation extending the timeline. So I kind of want to focus on some of the positives that can happen and see how obstacles can be overcome. And I spoke to one real veteran advisor who worked with LA Metro for some time, and they've been able to deliver some of the biggest projects and some of the most innovative projects as well. Just thinking about the Sepulveda Corridor where I mean, you're, te- you're basically asking a taxpayer to spend money on two different systems, different disruption and early works, and you don't know which one you're going to pick. And be able to sell that and deliver that, that would be a political risk, you'd imagine, in, in some jurisdictions, but they've managed to do it. And one of the ways that they have been able to do that is through using tax ballots. And that can really help tie the public to the infrastructure that's going to be built and develop that sense of ownership. And it's actually available to a lot of jurisdictions out there, particularly the larger ones. Yeah, and I think the other thing about that that is really positive in terms of that political element is that it means that you can point to a mandate regardless of who's in office at any one time. And you you mentioned Calcasieu and obviously the fact that there was a change of governor there and it changed from Democrat to Republican Actually, you know, if you've got a mandate from a specific you know, vote for a project, then it, it doesn't quite matter so much, does it, whether it's a, a Democrat or Republican coming in or going out, that the public have kind of had their say. And you would assume that whoever comes in is going to be able to rely on that rather than it being a kind of a political hot potato. Absolutely. And particularly as some of the jurisdictions which are right at the forefront of delivering the large-scale P3s at the moment are your kind of metro areas, which might not be politically aligned with the larger state as a whole, particularly you know, if you've got somewhere it's a, a very big rural state and then you've got a metro centre which is booming, they can often be misaligned. And so in terms of the state governors and, and things like that might be a little bit different. But if you can get that buy-in from that local community 
and you've already then sorted some of the funding for it in the long-term pipeline, it can go a real long way to overcoming that. And I think it's just a really healthy way to do it. Getting public buy-in is so important for infrastructure, especially of this scale when it can be such a lightning rod in this polarized environment, particularly in the in the US. If you look at GDOT and how they managed to restart their pipeline only a year or so ago, but still keep that public enthusiasm and trust, I think that goes a long way. And also being honest with the public and saying, you know, this is why we're restarting it. We need to do it for X, Y, and Z. It goes a long way to keeping the pipelines on track and ultimately getting the infrastructure that people need because so often it can just slide and then you're only going to get a spiral of negativity if people aren't getting what they need and you know, you're not delivering it for no real reason other than politics. Yeah, it's about buy-in and it's also about communication, isn't it? That once you've taken a particular path and made a particular choice, then getting that public support on side is the first step and then following that actually communicating with them to keep them on track through what will often be a long and at times difficult procedure from initial procurement right through to actual operation of the, of the facility whatever it might be you know and particularly when you're talking about something like you know heavy heavy rail civil big civil contracts big civil infrastructure where you're digging up large areas of the ground and you're putting in rail or whatever it might be heavy rail maybe and actually that can cause great disruption but if you're communicating to people properly then the hope is that you can take them with you on that journey yeah absolutely i guess it's a nice segue in terms of communications on pipelines for p3s there aren't many better at doing that than infrastructure ontario and there's been a major update last week from michael lindsay and also uh, minister king Asema about the way that they're going to deliver the projects. And a big part of that was actually kind of taking a step back from the committed P3s, a lot of them that we saw in the March update, and putting them back into the to-be-decided box in terms of the model that we need. And that included a big swathe of the social pipelines, a lot of hospitals and healthcare projects, as well as some prison projects. Interesting, there was one project which had gone out of to be decided and now into design build finance but there was definitely a sense that they're having to communicate with the both the market and also the public to say like look we are actively thinking about how we deliver these projects and are willing to make the difficult decisions to make sure we get it right what was your sense of how the market kind of reacted to that Paul? Yeah well I think you know if you go back to the CCPP conference which was the previous month there was quite a charged conversation there around the use and potential what some consider to be an over-reliance on the progressive P3 model. And I think there was some irritation among some of the investors and developers there around the focus on that and how actually there are models that are perfectly good and useful for a certain size of project and maybe we need to be looking at those a bit more. Maybe it's a a certain reaction to that. I mean, on the other hand, I have spoken to people since that announcement, and I think there was a certain level of kind of sighing of around, you know, this, well, this is kind of typical political risk, typical sort of government behaviour. You know, one person did say to me that you can't really count on a project being defined uncertain until it's about to be in market via an RFQ. 
which is obviously you know that's not ideal for developers as they kind of look to look at what the pipeline might be and i think it has raised some sort of irritation and concern that maybe you know infrastructure ontario isn't as one person said to me that they're not all that serious about the value and benefit of the whole life aspect of the p3 and you know that they're focusing more on the short term than the long term yeah most of the projects were dbf i think there was maybe one dbfm that was put into the tbd box and you do hear those questions around the role of operation and maintenance because that is quite often the the attractive part of the investment proposition as a whole for the p3 community i heard one theory that the infrastructure ontario might be waiting to see the outcome of the progressive p3 in uh, ottawa with the ottawa hospital and potentially depending on how that goes then like you say moving further into that model but the larger conversation in the p3 industry over the last year or so has really centered around the role of progressive p3s and trying to get people interested in projects and a couple of infrastructure ontario's projects recently have had one or or maybe two bidders some of those i think were the progressive ones but recently we saw different yeah and i think the um it may just be that this is a kind of pragmatic response really when you take that step back you know the fact that as you say we've seen these projects come out we've seen a number of them come out with only one bidder infrastructure ontario have said many times that the purpose of them doing these different types of models is because they want to increase competition etc etc want to get the best value for their projects and so it might as i say be kind of a pragmatic approach of well we need to take a step back we need to decide what's going to work and just sort of labeling projects dbf dbfm whatever you know at, at a really early stage maybe we're doing this too early maybe we need to take on board more evaluation and like you say you know we could well be waiting for others to see what or comes along and see how other schemes work. I think actually staying in Canada as well, on a more positive note, it was good to see that the Alberta government swiftly rejected a motion that came in from the opposition party in the parliament, which would have prohibited the use of P3 models for school construction in the province. And I think when you look back over the last year, at the start of the year, Infrastructure Minister Nathan Neudorf cancelled the procurement of a school's P3 bundle and said the province would not use P3 as a preferred method for school building. But clearly this latest step suggests that there is still an avenue for P3 in education in, in Alberta. But it's obviously a mixed picture there, but good to see that, that they have kind of swiftly responded to that. Yeah, it's definitely been one of the successful strains in Alberta and it's a number of of bundles that they've delivered and you've seen those being looked to as case studies for other jurisdictions and I know that there's other provinces in Canada who are in the process I think it's Nova Scotia who are considering using it for some projects and I know that's also been a political football as well but it's a very active conversation that seems to be happening in Canada and whilst it because it's come from a, a relatively strong place for P3s in the past. It can feel like a bit of a threat, but you do want to have a... We urge people to have conversations around P3s to try and get that base of support to move projects forward so things don't cancel at the last minute like we have seen in, in other places. So 
it's a tricky one, Canada, at the moment. Yeah, and I think, you know, I guess if you're looking at Alberta, you could cynically say, well, 12 months ago, we were sitting here with a, a P3 education bundle in procurement, and then we found out it wasn't going to be procured via P3, and there was this kind of negative view of P3 coming from the infrastructure minister. But then, you know, you go 12 months later, and suddenly the government seems to be in favour, or at least not you know, completely anti-P3 for, for education. And you start to think, well, we've not moved anywhere in the last 12 months. And you know, as an investor, you want some sort of certainty over the pipeline. In January, maybe people started to say, well, okay, we won't focus any time and effort on education P3s in Alberta. And now they maybe look at this decision or this what the government has done with this motion from the opposition and say, well, there is an opportunity for P3s in, in education. And I think it's that lack of clarity that is getting quite frustrating in different parts of the, well, but different parts of Canada and different parts of the world, really. Well, one of the actual brighter spots then in terms of education P3s in Canada, there has actually been an, a couple of university P3s that have come forward in the last couple of weeks. The Toronto Metropolitan University released an EOI a couple of weeks ago that looks quite exciting as a student housing project. And also we saw a one of those energy overhauls that we've seen in the US been quite popular going out for procurement as well. Again, you've got maybe education takes a knock in one side, but then you've got other PPPs coming up in another jurisdiction. It is a real mixed bag in Canada. There are some real growth spots and there's some there's some challenges ahead. Yes, and I think higher education is sector unto itself in, in some ways. It seems to be just growing and growing almost wherever you look where there are P3s. So, you know, obviously Canada, you mentioned the US and even you know, UK, Europe, you still see these projects come to market, even in places like the UK where PVP is not a uh, preferred method of choice for many projects. Well, definitely. I was just making some notes on this for the US because talking to a few people, they've been a bit concerned about the amount of projects in the uh, university P3 space, particularly after some quite high profile slides of projects. There's one in Alaska, which fell over, also some in um, Florida, all for their own reasons and not not to say those those were unreasonable. But just in the last month, the University of Mississippi is looking for consultants to help consider a potential pipeline of P3s. Oregon State has restarted its search. University of Michigan has closed the deal with American campus communities as well as an RFQ for a hotel. Texas State's doing a hotel too. University of Missouri's doing a regen. California University Housing and also one at Santa Monica College. I could I could genuinely go on. These are all things that have come out in the last month or so, which not everyone's going to turn into a project. Some also might slide, but it definitely looks like there's a resurgence in people believing that their universities can utilize these and the lessons learned potentially from projects that haven't gone well are now look to be feeding back in to make sure that there is a real healthy new growth of projects coming online now. Yeah, and I think it's probably partly to do with the pandemic lag as well, isn't it? At the time that the pandemic happened, there was this assumption or maybe fear in some quarters that the whole way in which uh, students were going to start learning would, would change completely and, you know, uh, students wouldn't be going onto campus; they'd be working from home, like the rest of us, and would rather do that. But you know, it's 
very quickly become clear that's not the case. But even on that subject, if you look at the demographics of students in the future, quite often people do point to it and say that it's, it's kind well could be likely that there's going to be less students around. So how do you manage that risk if you're going to be delivering some a student housing project, say? And there are mechanisms to do that. You could say the university might take on the renting of these facilities to the students. And in that sense, it's kind of a quasi-availability payment type. is not, but it kind of is to the public-private partnership provider, which then enables the university to upgrade their offering to the now more competitive student market. So whilst there, again, might be challenges down the road, it looks like a sector that's able to flex and, and find solutions to keep it moving forward, because it is a real bright spot. Yeah, and I've spoken to people as well about this issue. It's kind of my first question when I speak to people about higher education, because, you know, I remember having conversations pre-pandemic and people sometimes saying, I'm not sure how long this kind of higher education bubble can last because there are only so many students. And as you say, demographics in the future are changing. But actually, I think most people accept now that the twin factors of overseas students wanting to come and and be at a, a top university or a near top university will have an impact. And also the fact that this tightening market means that all universities are going to have to become more competitive. And part of being competitive is having a good offering for, for students in terms of their accommodation. Definitely. And I had a really great conversation with um, JLL's Lindsay Stowell and also um, the University of uh, Purdue University's Rob Weinkoop to talk about some of the P3s that they've done in the past and and what's made them successful and what lessons they've learned. So I really encourage people to go and have a listen to that. Yes, definitely. And on top of that as well, our colleague in the US, Sandra McQuain, has done a recent article on higher education, basically her reflections on the P3 Higher Education Summit in San Diego from, from last month. So I think, yeah, there's plenty of content to dig into if you're in the higher education sector looking looking at that market. Well, now it's time to hand over to Jonathan and Rory for a look at the Global Projects Tracker. Great. So, Rory, we wanted to have a little look back at some of you know your highlights for the year and maybe touch on a few different jurisdictions about projects that have been quite significant in the progress that they've made. Where do you want to start? Hi, Jonathan. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, I thought I'd start in your hometown, actually, of Bristol, where the Bristol City Leap Project, or Bristol City Leap Energy Partnership, to give it its official title, had been in the pipeline since 2018, when it was reported that it had been included in the UK's first energy investment portfolio at a Board of Trade meeting in Swansea. Now, since that time, the procurement process was restarted, having reached the shortlist phase back in 2020. So it's been a bit of a checkered history on this one, but it got over the line eventually in 2022 when a consortium of renewable energy asset developer Amoresco and Sweden's nationally owned energy company Vattenfall were selected as preferred bidders. So the contract wasn't actually signed for this one until January this year, which is how it's made its way onto our yearly round of major projects and kind of demonstrates how long it often takes for these larger, more complex projects to fully get over the line. So the energy partnership involves a complete overhaul of the city's energy system. It's a really interesting one. It's being described as historic by those involved. £12 million concession, which is set to be a systemic change to the city's energy provision and infrastructure, and a key element in Bristol's drive for carbon neutrality by 2030. Brilliant. 
Brilliant. Obviously, Bristolians are famous with adopted Bristolian infrastructure pioneer Brunel for industrially changing the United Kingdom. Do you think this could lead Very to true. anything else? Well, as we also reported back in September, there was a report by the government's former energy czar, Chris Skidmore, uh, which was published by the recently established Mission Zero Coalition, calls for the UK to develop a series of initiatives based on the uh, Bristol Leap Scheme, which will boost net zero across the country. So it's a scheme which could serve as a blueprint for the future decarbonisation of our cities across the UK. Fantastic. Exciting. What about something in America? Anything similarly pioneering over there? So earlier this month in California, the Contra Costa Transportation Authority and Tri-Delta Transit signed a P3 to deliver a pioneering personal microtransit project. The scheme, which will see a plenary-led team uh, featuring technology provider Glideways and contractor Flatiron deliver the technology solution, which will connect the Bay Area Rapid Transit or BART system, one for all the Simpsons fans out there, to the cities of Antioch, Brentwood, Oakley and Pittsburgh. Uh, The project will use technology developed by Glideways to deliver autonomous vehicle pods, which are capable of carrying over 2,000 passengers an hour in each direction. So it's a very futuristic and innovative sounding project. Fantastic. I had the real pleasure to talk to a number of the teams behind that project, including Glideways, ACS, who's one of the backers of Glideways, and obviously through Flatiron here and also Plenary, and another really innovative firm, called Cavnu, who are delivering uh, autonomous-enabled highways. So to see these really exciting new technologies come forward and be delivered through P3s is a real bright spot for the industry. And if you read the article as well, you'll see that a lot of people are looking at P3s as actually the way to deliver these projects because of the fact that they can take on risks to deliver really new projects. So new projects that carry risks for authorities who perhaps might not want to take that on themselves, but they can help solve real key issues such as first mile and last mile. So really exciting. Yep. Anything on the really big scale? So one of the highest value PPP deals to get over the line this year was the first phase in delivering new housing in Saudi Arabia's NEOM, as contracts were signed in June this year for the 5.6 billion scheme to provide temporary worker housing for the people who are actually going to deliver the infrastructure in NEOM. So this is definitely a kind of first of its kind project and we'll see five new villages being delivered with the intention of providing housing for over 10,000 people. The villages will cover 560,007 square miles and include over 237 labour accommodation units, as well as multiple sports and entertainment facilities, dining facilities, access medical care, mosques, utility buildings and various other facilities. So this is part of what's going to be an absolutely massive project but just getting underway amazing yeah just looping back to right at the beginning in the webinar someone was saying that they visited these sites and you're seeing that these aren't just dreams these are real shovels in the ground and they're going at a scale which you know we've not seen before brilliant well thanks so much rory great to hear about this no problem at all thanks john well thank you both for that and as it's the last episode of the year i just wanted to sign off by thanking all our listeners and guests this year We really enjoy doing these podcasts and it's great to hear that you enjoy listening to them too. So we hope you have a great Christmas period and we will see you in 2024.